So John Branion and I, Luke McKinney, are what in the middle of Kentucky now? Uh, yeah, probably pretty close to the middle of Kentucky. On our way to somewhere near Atlanta, Georgia, to do a comedy show. Woodstock. Woodstock, Georgia. And a beautiful day. It's been smooth sailing so far, except for John ignoring his GPS a few times. Mm-hmm. I only ignored my GPS really once, and that was enough to take us on three detours. <laughs> and uh, this car has a nice feature where it will ding after, what, about 45 minutes of driving and tell you to take a break? Yeah, it's about that. Right? Just, it, it's, a, it's a nice feature once you understand what it is, but the first time it dings and you're like, what's going on? Because it sounds like the same sound it would make if there was a major problem with the engine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's trying to avoid a major problem with your health or something. It seems to have some sort of a monitor that can sense how uncomfortable your butt is and it says, hey, why don't you take a break? Or they know they didn't design this car to be good for long drives. It's like, well, we need to figure out a way. To tell people. <laughs> but actually, I've been pretty impressed with the ride of this Mazda. But this is not a car review. Um, this is sort of a behind-the-scenes sort of uh, comedian next-door bonus content thing. Uh, we've been actually talking for hours now. Um, unfortunately, not recording. Yep, all of the interesting stuff we've already said, and now that we have nothing else to say, we're going to yeah. turn the recorder on. The thing is, I can't go home without having recorded something, or I'll get yelled at by the peaches. Right. So. So, well, we, we yeah, Luke and I have talked about a lot of philosophical stuff. We've talked about Roe versus Wade being overturned. And Mostly the response to it the being number, The number of Christians who are really, really upset that babies are going to have a better chance of staying alive in the womb. A lot of, a lot of Christians are annoyed by that uh, for some reason. For good reasons, right? Uh, no. Uh, well, you know, it's about freedom. It's about freedom, yeah. Yeah, no. It's, it is a shame that we didn't have a recorder on. Anyway, we've been talking a lot about, uh, quote, progressive... Christianity and the response of the church to it, what it should be. Um, and I think we agree that it, it needs to be called out for the heresy that it is. Throw them out! <laughs> Throw them out from among us! Yeah, there's no room for progressive Christianity. There's no room for the word progressive in the church because I think that the Anytime you add a qualifier or an adjective in front of Christian, I get suspicious, right? Because it, because it's a modifier. You've got you've got Christianity, but what kind of Christianity? Well, it, how could there? Is there a kind of Christianity? Are there different kinds of Christianity? I would submit that there are not. It's it's about moving the faith forward, John. And we hold hands with culture and move it forward. That's the progressive <laughs> right. thing, right? Right. We allow them to sort of shape and mold, you know, yeah, well, more of the sharp, icky parts. We'll have, we'll, have a, we'll have a more pristine Christianity if we mix it with paganism. Because ultimately, it's about relationships. Yes, that and was... We don't want to harm the relationships we have with unbelievers by throwing in things like correct theology... Right, because because unbelievers, that's that's really their problem with Christianity, is that it is different from unbelief. And so, if you want to have relationships with people, you have to you have to give up your convictions and acquiesce to their convictions, because that's what Jesus did all the time. Anytime Jesus ever encountered somebody who had a different point of view than him. He would quickly roll over and and say, you know what, I'm not here to fight and argue with you. I'm just here to make friends. Yeah, it's like they love Jesus. They, lo- they love talking about Jesus. But as if Jesus said, forget all that stuff my father said. Just just love and and eat with sinners and don't judge. Love Eat with sinners and don't judge. Well, that's that is what love is. When, when Jesus 
when progressive Jesus is talking and he says love, what he means is, what he means is don't tell anybody that they're wrong. Just accept everything that everybody believes. Just accept everything that everybody does and do not judge them. And if they are wrong, they'll realize they're wrong after about 10 years of being in a relationship with you and of you never bringing it up. Yeah, they'll just know. Yeah, they'll just know. They'll just figure it out. And and then, and then when they admit that they're wrong, you need to quickly tell them, oh, no, 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 there's no such thing as wrong. You know, you need to say, don't beat yourself up over it because God is not mad at you. That's how progressive Christianity works. So you just wait around and wait for people to figure out and be convicted that they're wrong and then immediately tell them that they shouldn't feel bad about being wrong. Because God's not mad at them. Because God's not mad at you. And God doesn't care if you're right or wrong. Only that you're nice. Only that you... Hell, I'm not sure how they would say that. Because because God is... uh, you know, God made them just the way they are. Yeah. So therefore, the way they are is is okie dokie. And I shared with you that I was struggling a bit with the verses of the Bible that talks about not associating with certain types of people. Do not even do not have them named among you. Do not eat with them. Don't eat with them. Versus the verses where Jesus does eat with sinners and. And we are called to be a light, and you, you can't be a light if you're under a bushel, etc. Right. And, and meshing those two together, and you said that your opinion of that was that the people that it's talking to about not having them named among you are people who identify as Christians. Right. Right. I think that I think that there are different rules for people who want to be named among the church. I mean, I, I know there are. If you're going to if you're going to be my disciple, you take up your cross daily and follow me. And you put others first. And you... There, there's rules for being his disciple. Jesus said you got to hate your mother and father. He doesn't literally mean despise them with emotion. But what he's saying is that you're that I come first. I come before everything else uh, that there is. And so if you've got somebody who wants to be Christ's disciple among you who is not putting Christ first, then the scripture says that you there's steps to take to try to bring them back under the authority of the scripture. But if they refuse to put themselves under authority, if they, if they continue to want to identify as a disciple, but they're not living as a disciple, then you have to kick them out of the group, because they're going to pollute other people's faith. But, yeah, if you, you, can, you can eat with sinners as long as it's understood that you guys are not on the same team. You can eat with people on a different team. But you just can't eat with people who claim to be on the same team, but are actually on a different team. Don't. Sheep shouldn't join hands with wolves. Right. Well, sheep, yeah, sheep, it's not a good idea for sheep to join hands with wolves. Um, but that's, a, that's another good point. If you're going to be friends with Christians, you're going to have, or if you're going to have relationships with, with pagans, with people who are not of the same faith, they need to be relationships at a distance. You can't have... It's unwise to forge deep, intimate relationships with people who are not of the same beliefs as you. Because somebody is going to be influenced. And I know there's a lot of Christians who tell themselves, well, I need to make relationships with people so I can lead them to Christ. And it's like, well, actually, the first thing you should do is start following Christ yourself. That's the first thing. You're making an assumption here that you're this mature, devout disciple of Jesus who's now ready to bring other people into the fold. And the fact is, you're barely inside the fence yourself. So if you start, yeah, joining hands with wolves, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get eaten. 
there's a culture's real big on you know you got to love yourself first before you can love others but yeah. culture and Christians included are not good with the first part of Matthew about the whole remove this the plank from your own eye like they want to say don't judge but they don't want to do that's for one a mistranslation of that to not judge but they don't want to introspect enough to see their own hypocrisy before blasting out their opinion right to the world right well actually the it's interesting because the parable says you uh, you know you hypocrites you have a you're trying to you're trying to point out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye and the implication there is that you don't you're not aware of the plank in your own eye and the reason you're not aware of it is because somebody hasn't told you that it's there and so it's a, it's a two-way street. You, you need to first remove the plank in your own eye. Well, how do you know that there's a plank there? Well, your brother is supposed to tell you. Well, they would argue, I don't need you to point out my faults because I have the Holy Spirit. Right. And it's not your job, which is not, but doesn't jive with the well, context that, of the rest of the Bible. It's not, it doesn't fit the parable either. The parable, the parable says you have a plank in your own eye. And how would you... How would you leave a plank in your eye unless you didn't know that it was there? And so somebody has to do for you what you're trying to do. You're trying to remove a speck from your brother's eye, which isn't the problem. The problem is you're trying to do it while you have a plank in your own. The problem is you are wanting to remove a speck from your brother's eye, but you are oblivious to and you don't want help removing the plank from your own eye. And so that's the... I think being oblivious to and not wanting help are two different things. Do you think sometimes it's either or? Well, you don't want help because you don't think you need it. Because you're oblivious. Okay, that makes you're sense. not aware of the of the plank in your own eye. And so the people who the people who are saying don't judge, for example, are they they wouldn't think they think that to say don't judge because you're not perfect. All the reasons that they give for not judging, they think that that is good and right and noble. And they are they are unaware that they are the people that Christ is talking to. It's not the person, the person with the speck in their eye will be uh, grateful if you help them remove that speck. The person with the plank in their eye is so blind uh, that they can't even see it. And those are the people that get really upset when you suggest to them that actually what they're doing, well, just suggest to them that the Bible doesn't say don't judge, but it says judge righteously. Just float that out to those people and see how they react. I haven't, I haven't ever had somebody say, oh, you know what? Thank you. I hadn't, I hadn't interpreted it this way before. I haven't, I haven't read it this way before. This is really helpful. Never had anybody do that. The the best that I've ever had is people just ignore it and move on, like I didn't say anything. But most of the time, they fight. They fight with me. Yeah. Jesus didn't come to judge. Jesus didn't come to legislate morality. Jesus didn't come to you know, bring law. Right. Well, there's a lot of that in this Roe versus Wade. Uh, aftermath. There's a lot of people talking about that. Luke was reading a quote from somebody who identifies as a Christian who was basically saying all of that. Jesus didn't come to judge. He didn't come to to establish political power. He, he, didn't come he forced to, morality on no one. He didn't force his morality on anyone. And that is somebody whose theology has been developed by reading social media posts. That's, you don't get that theology from the scripture. Um, even a tertiary reading, even a quick reading of the New Testament, um, and you'll get the idea that Jesus was pretty, pretty rock solid when it came to, uh, yeah, you gotta either love me or you're doomed. You gotta, you gotta accept and follow my commandments 
or you're doomed. And if that's not a... You love God by keeping commandments. Right. You love me by keeping my commandments. So they want love. They're all about love, but they're by love by their definition, which is tolerance, not obedience. It's tolerance for sin, specifically. Right, right. Right. It's, it's, uh, the whole concept of holiness is is gone. Yeah. Well, and that's where it gets tricky, too, because you're dealing with people who are not good thinkers. And so when you say, when they say the word tolerance, there's, there's a point where I agree with it. I agree that we should be tolerant of each other's opinions, of, of things that are not uh, gospel-related. Yes, there's grace and tolerance for a whole bunch of different points of view, a whole bunch of different tastes and preferences. But, but we can't tolerate sin. And they're not nuanced enough in their use of that word to know the difference. And so, yeah, you can't tolerate um, men becoming women because that's not just a personal preference. You're, you're butting up against God-ordained truths. Right. You can't be tolerant of murdering babies before they're born because you're butting up against one of God's universal truths is that you're not, we're not qualified to decide life and death. We don't get to pick who lives and dies. God does that. And so you can't be tolerant of sin. And that's where the conversation usually breaks down. Well, because that's, you're pushing, you're pushing the church on people who don't believe it. Right. And I mean, we are now driving two miles north of Cincinnati, but we are still in God's church right now. I mean, this is this is all God's. It's not like we're it's not like we can't speak here or we can't declare God's authority over you know the pagans that live here. Right. Well, that's a very a very westernized Christianity philosophy that that says. You're not allowed to push your religion on other people. You shouldn't force your morality on other people. And the problem with that is, do you think that your morality is correct? Because if you think, if I think that my moral outlook is correct and beneficial for all people, then why wouldn't I push it on them? You know, if I think it's a good idea to, to wear a seatbelt, when I get in a roller coaster, why wouldn't I force everybody to wear a seatbelt when they got in a roller coaster? And the fact is that you, when you get in a roller coaster, you do have to wear a seatbelt. Why? Because they force that good idea on everybody that's in the roller coaster. And if you don't, if you refuse to be restrained in the roller coaster, they won't let you ride. And because it's their roller coaster, and they get to determine the rules of such. Right. Morality is God's, and they are His standards. Right. They're His. And we are in a, living in a world that obeys His commands. Yes. And if and if Christians are supposed to believe that those are good things, Christians are supposed to delight in God's laws. Delight in them. That's the way the psalmists write. Oh, I'm so happy. I, I delight in your laws. I love your laws. I love your precepts. I love your commands. That's the attitude we're supposed to have towards God's rules. We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to love the restrictions and the rules and the restraints that God puts on us. And if, it's a, if we're in a roller coaster, we do kind of love the restraints, right? Especially when you go over that first hill. Uh, or you go in that loop it's like man I love this shoulder harness because it would not be going well for me if I didn't have this harness on that's the attitude we're supposed to have about God's laws but there's a lot of Christians who have bought into the idea that religious law is oppression right. that, we are, that we're squelching people's freedoms and we are uh, minimizing people's uh, joy well, the, at the bottom of that list of roller coaster rules, it says, you know, 
failure to wear this seatbelt, you will not make it to the end of this ride. Right. Right. This is the way. This is the correct way. And. Uh, but we don't. We don't want to push that on other people. If they want to fall out, they can just fall out. Right. But, but we can suggest but even, it. Even saying that, though, even saying that, that, that's nobody practically lives that way. Right. Nobody, nobody goes. You know what? Screw it. I'm gonna. I don't want to restrain. No, nobody does that because they know that if they're unrestrained in that first loop, they're going to fly out of the coaster and probably die. And they also don't say to somebody else who who is sitting next to them who goes, you know what? I'm not going to use this restraint. They wouldn't go. Well, okay, it's your life. Do what you please. They they wouldn't do that. Right. But we do that all the time. They with, also with try Christian to convince faith. you that they don't believe in an end to the ride. Right. This just goes on forever. It goes on forever. Well, we do we do that with Christianity all the time. We we assume that people are going to be. It, it'd be nice if people became Christian, but we assume they're going to be okay, even if they're not. Even if they don't strap in, they're going to be all right. It's not a big deal. I certainly don't want to damage the relationship by forcing my opinion that they should wear a shoulder harness. I don't want to force anybody to do that. Um, and that's that's ineffective Christianity. Well, those, that's, are, those are people who are like, how come nobody goes to church anymore? Well, that's why. Because you don't think it's important. Well, that goes back to the progressive Christianity. And you compared it to atheism, which I thought was a little harsh. But then you explained that they're both... Well, how did you, how did you word it? That there's no, there's no practical difference between progressive Christianity and atheism. Because they, it's the same mindset. One of them, the progressive Christians use words like Jesus and prayer and God, and the atheists don't. But they end up uh, ethically in exactly the same spot. And there's there's no uh, there's no such thing as sin in progressive Christianity. There's just people who make mistakes. There's just people who need uh, mental help they need to, they need to see a counselor there's just some brokenness Christians some are broken and and they're and they may be suffering or whatever but it's not because they're evil it's not because they're sinful it's just because they need help they need professional help to stabilize their chemistry and then they will behave properly that's exactly what the atheists say and the the progressive Christians and the atheists both believe that there's no such thing as sin that there's just people who behave contrary to the way society dictates that they ought to behave. But there's no objective sin. There's no objective good. It's a malaise of feelings. If I feel like this is the right thing to do, then it is the right thing to do. And you are bad for telling me that I'm incorrect. And any any attempt to expand Christianity outside the doors of the church is met with resistance from both camps. It's right. Like we, we belong in church. It's a personal relationship. We don't even have to go to church. As right. long as we are not trying to push our Christian ideology on anyone else, atheists and progressives are like, perfect, do right. that. Right. Well, it's, it's so... It's funny. Like, it's, it's just funny that the, the worst act of aggression that you can force, that you can do, the worst act of aggression that you can commit is quote-unquote forcing your religion on another person. And what do they mean when they say force your religion? Basically all they mean is express your point of view, express your faith. Um, there are no Christians that are rounding people up at gunpoint and herding them into church on Sunday morning. Nobody's doing that. There are, there are no Christians. You can express your point of view, but you have to follow it up with, I could be wrong. Well, right. That, that's what I'm saying. That when you when you express your point of view as if it's the truth and somebody else is wrong, that is the worst possible aggression that you can commit. It's even worse than killing your baby before it's born. It's even worse than grooming children uh, by... Than allowing your children to be groomed by pedophiles in women's clothing. That that's not a problem. 
the, the, the problem is when you voice your Christianity, when you just express faith in Christ, that is intolerably aggressive. Well, that's what was intolerable about Jesus at all. Right. Was his, you know, unwavering hold on the truth. This is the way. Right. Well, the, the, the whole New Testament is full of stories of the apostles getting flogged and thrown in jail and all sorts of stuff because they would not shut up about the gospel. But that was it. They were too exclusionary. They didn't, John. But they didn't rally troops, you know. They didn't collect. They didn't collect people to go to war against the uh, the powers that be, the authorities. They didn't. They didn't try to overthrow anybody. All they did was kept saying that Jesus is Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the way. That's it. They just expressed their faith. And he doesn't share the throne. That's, right. that's important. Right, he doesn't show the throne. He, he is the only way. I but, like that we're on the loudest stretch of road that we can I know, possibly hear. Yeah. It sounds like we're in an airplane now taking off. Why do they do this? Why do they send machines down to just tear up the top layer of asphalt and then leave it that way? I think that it's a ploy by the tire manufacturers to get you worn down faster. I hadn't thought about that, but... We could pause if you want. I don't know how to do that with this app. No. Um, so we're gonna so hope we're not for gonna pause. hope for smoother sailing. This will be. So no, this. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna pause for just a minute. So that'll give us a noise level. Oh. Okay. So I found the pause button, um, and we are on smoother roads. So we might have to cut out that middle section. I don't know. Um, so I. As we were looking for smoother stretches of road, it occurred to me that we are on our way to do comedy, um, but on the way we are having fairly deep conversation about the, the ills of society and all of this deep, upsetting stuff. Do you have trouble bouncing from the two, from the different mindsets of being frustrated with what's going on in churches and in culture and then turning around and trying to be light and funny? Because to me, those are two different modes, mentally. Yeah. yeah, they are. And yes, I do have trouble bouncing back and forth between those two modes, which is why I have material. <laughs> uh, because the material was created when I was in a mode, a different mode than I'm in when I'm having a deep philosophical conversation. And so, when I go on stage, all I have to do is dip into the material, and I don't have to kind of wakes up that part of your mind. Well, it, it shuts it off, basically. I'm Now I'm doing comedy, and I'm not I'm not actually in thinking mode anymore. I'm in, I'm in performance mode, and so um, yeah, it would, it would be very difficult to do that if I was going to have to shut this off and then think of funny things to say when I was up on stage. Right. But I've already thought of some funny things to say, so all I have to do is say them. And Sometimes I feel, like, bipolar with my ADHD. Like, not, not like, mood balancing, but, like, motivation and, and enthusiasm. Like, if I just accomplish something, like, I feel like I could do literally anything. So, like, I got my certification... And then immediately decided I needed to do an online master's degree, even though it's self-paced and accelerated, which is terrible for an ADHD person. But I was on that high of accomplishment. And in high school, my parents paid a lot of money for me to do an assessment of different likes and strengths and stuff. And they were going to put me in an ideal job. But I was, like, about to graduate. I was feeling good. And I, like way overestimated my interest Cause, and it came time for him to sit me down and tell me about it he was like well this was hard because you liked everything right. <laughs> it's like you put that you love math which is not at all true but at the time <laughs> I was on a high like, I was like of course I, I like everything. math I can do anything Chemistry. and so it was like well it's going to be hard to narrow this down so how about engineering which I'm glad I didn't do because I don't like math I don't like math 
there's a little bit of math in engineering. A little bit. But yeah, I'll, I'll go from from that down to it's it's hard to want to do anything. Right. Well, focus is focus is a challenge, I think, for everybody. You have to train yourself. Um, and yeah, it, it, when you're when I'm writing uh, material and I'm trying to do comedy material, if, if I'm doing it in a room by myself and I have to focus, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's much easier to write comedy when I'm just interacting with other people. Just having conversations, playing cards, uh, doing yard work, helping somebody move—you know, just just interacting with other people. We did a, a riff, much easier way to do comedy. We did a riff on trail cams a few minutes ago, and that just popped up because of a picture I saw on Facebook. But I think that there's legs to that, right? So people yeah, that it's put helpful. Cameras out in the woods so they can yeah. spy on wildlife. Yeah. yeah, I'll work on that. It's uh, yeah. But then when you when you switch into a different mode, and it's all related to, H's and I have talked about this a number of times, that there's, it, it's all the same brain, it's all the same mind that, that creates comedy and ponders philosophy. And so there's a, it's all connected. It's not like, it's not like you completely shut down the comedy in order to philosophize because there's elements of comedy like when you're talking about uh, strapping into a roller coaster, uh, that's a that's an illustration, and that's more from the comedy brain than it is from the philosophy brain. The philosophy thinks in abstract concepts, and comedy brings about concrete, you know, ideas. It puts makeup and clown shoes on those ideas. Right. You always preach. You don't think in words. You think in. What images you think in pictures? Pictures, yeah. pictures and memories. You you, you think yeah. in sounds and memories and feelings, and uh, in pictures. Yeah, you don't you don't think in words. So that's that's part of the that's one of the things that that is disconcerting when you first realize it. I used to think that I had control over what I think. I used to think that I could control my thoughts, but you really can't. Your, your mind is wide open and very suggestible. You know, as soon as somebody comes along and says, "Don't think of a banana," boom, it's there, and you can't help it. Right? It's, it's in your mind, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Well, that's what makes comedy work at all: is being able to put that stuff in people's minds. Right. Speaking of which, we are going to a venue you've never been to. Yes. Um, it's a restaurant with a stage inside which is sort of a volatile mix of whether or not that will work well mm -hmm. but you're told it will I'm told it will and so when it comes to picking the material your set list for a specific crowd and venue and and all that when do you begin reading the room and thinking about that is it not till you get there is it not until you've actually done a few jokes and see how they are I don't, I don't even... Is it not even a conscious thing? It's not a conscious thing, and I don't worry about it. Certainly not until I get there. And then uh, I go on stage, and I can evaluate. If I'm not the first person on stage, which I'm not tonight, that helps. It gives me an advantage to being able to kind of analyze what the crowd is like. And then, and then I just make a decision based on, I don't know, it's, it's instinct. Um, there's some crowds that you have to talk to. Some crowds you have to talk to them, and and they like it. You can interact, and you can, and and, it, and it's a good time. The only thing that matters is whether or not the the audience has a good time. Right. It doesn't doesn't matter how much material I go through. It doesn't matter how much mater what material I do. All that matters is that the audience has a good time. This topic, so, I bring this up because I feel like I've I've failed to read the room properly on more than one occasion. Um, most specifically when I did an all-female show mm -hmm. and did my typical club set, essentially, when what they really wanted were stories about my kids, stories about you know family stuff. 
I see. Like, that would have been a way bigger hit with these older church ladies than, you know, my hardest-hitting, quote-unquote, material. Right, right. Um, and so... Well, that, yeah, that if you're going to be... If, if you have enough material that you can do different kinds, then, yeah, you're going to do a different set in front of a bunch of older church women than what you do at a uh, at a father-son pancake breakfast. It's going to be a different set of different set of material to to a certain extent. What what matters the most is your presence in the room. I mean, you have control when you have the microphone. You have a lot of power, and you can kind of dictate where the room is going to go. Um, and you can, you can set the tone. You can, and once you, once you set the tone, once you've established who you are, and the, and the audience likes you, you can kind of go wherever you want. You know, if, the, if you... For example, if you started out and did some jokes about your kids with the church ladies... You wouldn't have to just do jokes about your kids. You could, once you've won them over, and once they know, oh, he's a guy who's got a, he's a dad, he's got these kids, and they're funny stories, and it's adorable. I like him. Then you could deviate off into club material, and you'd be fine. Because they already like you. Right. And once the audience likes you, you can do whatever you want. The challenge is that when you're not doing, when you're not doing much time, you're only doing a six-minute set or a ten-minute set, and particularly if you're not the only one up on stage, if you're having to fit in with other things that are happening, it's a little more challenging because you don't really have enough time to to win the audience over. Like when you watch, you're stepping into a flow that the other comedians have already sort of set a, a precedence and a right to a certain extent, but even. Like if you watch late night television and they have comics on late night television, that's one of the hardest things to do. You've got four, five minutes, six minutes at the most, and go. You know, here's a guy, here's a guy, and the band played da 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 da, and then off you go. And and it's so hard to go from zero to you know yeah. awesome. That may, I've seen in some six really minutes. good comedians not do well mm-hmm. with that sort of a setup. Yep. Well, it's 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 hard. It's it's really hard to win over an audience in that frantic six minutes of time. Um, they don't know who you are. They don't know who you are, and they don't they don't get you. And, and so everything is, you know, everything is a is a joke. <laughs> and if the if the jokes are good, and they and if they like you again, then you'll will do okay, but if they're confused in some manner, it's uh, it's not good. It's it's really hard. Any anytime you watch a comic late night doing doing comedy, you just need to remember that that's a very difficult thing to do, and they deserve a little bit of respect just for just for trying it. And that has been some reading the room advice from the comedian next door. How to read the room. And we're back on the road after a potty break. (laughs) Got some nice quiet road. Um, We had started a conversation that was interesting, and so here I am with the recorder again. Um, You had just finished saying the words that the loaves and fishes story is not, that was not welfare. Right, but the reason I said that was because you brought it up. I brought it up because of a friend who identifies as a Christian who I'm pretty sure is a socialist based on her advocacy for the need for mass amounts of social programs and supportive laws, as she put it. To feed feed these uh, single moms and their children. If we're going to force these women to have children, we have to provide from them for them because children who are unwanted are now everybody's responsibility. Right. Everybody's uh, problem. And so the the idea that Jesus was a socialist is actually pretty pervasive and growing 
in, in Christianity or progressive Christianity. Um, and my, my point was is that the, the parable of the loaves of fishes, you know, Jesus performed that miracle and he could have set it up to where that miracle was automated every day. Everybody could come and get their free loaves and fishes, but that's not what he did. And you, you said that people forget the next day. Right. Well, it was the, the people who say, well, the loaves and fishes, look, it's socialism. Jesus, Jesus just fed everybody and there was no cost. Uh, that's not true. Where did he get the loaves and fishes that he started with? Those were donated um, by a young lad who had them in his lunch. And so the, the, the fish and the loaves that were distributed, yes, Jesus multiplied the uh, donation, but there was still a seed. Somebody still had to give something. It wasn't free. Which is what he promises to do with all of our donations. Right. It wasn't free. There was an investment that uh, Nor was he somebody made. compelled to do so involuntarily. Correct. He didn't. He didn't force that boy to give up his loaves and fishes. Uh, at least it doesn't doesn't say that he did. You're right. This is you selfish, you selfish wealthy little kid. You should give those fish and loaves to everybody. You should share with everybody. Um, but the larger, uh, the larger understanding of that was that uh, Christ was demonstrating the the abundance of uh, of God's kingdom, the abundance of God's blessings. How you could take a little bit and do exactly what Jesus did. You can you can magnify and multiply. Uh, these small things and make them make them into something much bigger and much grander. That was the lesson. It wasn't Jesus wasn't demonstrating that there ought to be free lunch. And I know that's true because after you read about the miraculous feeding of the five thousand, the crowd shows up again just a few verses later and wants to get fed again. And that's when Jesus says, no, you're going to, well, you're, you're seeking after the wrong thing. You're seeking after bread and fishes, which is going to make you hungry again. Um, but unless you eat my, fled, my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have, you don't have a life. You don't have a place with me. And that was what turned him off. When, when he started, when he started saying there's stuff that you have to do is when they turned away. So Jesus wasn't, like you said, he wasn't a vending machine. He wasn't there to, f to just feed them, just, just to hand out food and be done with it. His goal was to, uh, was to feed people eternally, was to, to make them realize that they are 100% dependent on him not on loaves and not on fish, but you're dependent on Christ. And once he started saying things like that, that was when a lot of them left. And to bring that into the, the context before was we were discussing these progressive Christians, they're, they're big on what the state needs to do and what the government needs to do. Um, and, and you don't really find that biblically. You find personal commands and commands to the church um, because a lot of times they will use sob stories of girls you know who are in really hard times you know they're 15 years old and they're pregnant and maybe it's incest maybe it's you know whatever right and these are these are the stories they promote as to why abortion is necessary and should be a choice um, and they do the same thing for government schools public schools is that if you know a lot of these kids if they don't have school to go to, they don't eat that day. Um, and as right. tragic as those stories are, they're not compelling evidence for the need for those two things to exist. Um, it's it's just not. Right. Well, there's there's a whole lot more 
to consider when you talk about public public education than just whether or not kids are eating. I mean, that that's that's a pretty narrow thing to focus on. And I don't personally believe that it's even true. I mean, I just don't, I don't believe that there are millions of children on the verge of starvation being kept alive by the uh, distribution of food at the public school. I just don't think it's true. Um, I think that it is a sham. I think that it's what we're being told, what pe- what gullible people are being told. So they'll go, "Oh yeah, we got we got to keep public school around because we're gonna the body the bodies of starved children will begin to clutter our streets if we if they we don't have public school." Malnourished, under socialized, and you name it. Right, right. There there are multiple problems presented to us, and then. And then public school is presented as the solution to all of those problems. That, you know, if, you, if your kids aren't socialized, your kids are malnourished, your kids are uh, bullied, your kids have a low self-esteem, you know, whatever, whatever is ailing your children, public school is the answer. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think it's that simple. Um, it is a concession of parents of the authority that should be the household. It's a concession of the church, of the authority and responsibility that should be there. Um, and it's, yeah, we have we have turned that solution over to the state. Right. Well, it's convenient. Uh, exactly. And I don't think it's true that public school or the government is the solution for the same reason I don't think that just sending your kids to church is going to fix the problem. You know, I don't think that sending your kids to to vacation Bible school or sending your kids to a, a Christian university, those aren't solutions either. The, the solutions are uh, complicated, and there's a there's a point where everybody has to be able to offer their loaves and fishes to Christ in order for Him to do something with them, and that, that those. Those loaves and fishes didn't come from government programs. He didn't. He didn't solicit, you know, the city council to open up the storehouse and give him some food that he could multiply. And like you said, our the directive to feed people is on the church, and the church is individual people. It's it's me. It's my job to take care of needy people. Um, and in order to effectively do that, I have to be able to identify who those needy people are. And that's that's the other wrinkle that doesn't get talked about, is when we're... If I'm convinced that there are millions of children on the verge of starvation, and public school is the only way that they're staying alive, then I'm going to be focusing my attention on a need that doesn't exist. And that's, that's a sin from the standpoint of I, there are actual needs out there. There are, there are people who are in need, and I might be able to help them if I wasn't completely distracted by this make-believe need that somebody has told me exists. I think, I think that the, the biggest need that children have is just a robust education. I think they need... I think they need to be taught, uh, well, Christianity, and then everything that spins out of that. I don't think that children would turn to the bad influences that exist. They wouldn't. They wouldn't make school such an influential thing. They wouldn't turn to gangs and all of that if they, if their own parents made them feel valued enough to invest in them with their time and food and money instead of pawning all of those duties off on VBS workers and public school teachers. Uh, I mean, we talked a lot yeah. about about women in, in the workforce and the decision that that makes and the message that that sends to the children. Right. Right, there's a whole lot of nonverbal communication that happens when you, when you rush off uh, back to 
back to work when work is your priority. Um, that commu- you don't even have to tell the children that work is your priority. They know. They can tell by how much you're gone and how much time you spend away, how much time you're preoccupied doing things for work. Um, they know where your priorities are. It doesn't really matter what you say. You say, oh, you know what? I love you so much, and I'm a, I want to be with you. I want to stay with you. Um, you're, you're important to me. You're, they know that that's... They know that they're important. They may understand that they're important and that you care about them. But they also understand what's more valuable to you. Um, that, that's true with divorce, too. There's so many parents who get divorced because... They don't think that God wants children to live in an unhappy, you know, relationship. They don't, God, your children shouldn't have to grow up in a relation, in a home where mom and dad aren't happy. And it's like, well, where exactly are you getting that? But that's that's not that's not biblical. The Bible doesn't mention at all your personal happiness. It just says this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to raise your children. You're supposed husbands. You're supposed to love your wives. Wives. You're supposed to. Uh, you're supposed to uh, respect your husbands and children you're supposed to obey your parents and that's it it doesn't say if this makes you happy train them up yeah and and you're to clarify we're not anti-VBS and you're not anti-parents finding ways to provide for their children um, or working Uh, but yeah it's no I'm not I'm not anti-VBS I'm anti parents sending their children to a program or another program and thinking there I've solved whatever problems are cropped up um, so yeah it's it's not the program that I'm being critical of it's the parents who are relying on that program as the, the solution for all of the stuff that they're going to be going through as a family 